Hello, everyone. Glad to be with you digitally as we continue our sermon series, Famous Stories of Love. You know, we're taking our theme, Love Matters Most, this year in 2020 from Jesus, who was asked, what's the most important rule in the Bible? What is the most important command? And he answered that the command to love your your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is the most important command. He added to it a second one, love your neighbor as yourself. Love God and love your neighbor. Jesus said that is the most important rule in the Bible. But then he says something after that that's fascinating. And in fact, we're spending most of the year thinking about it. Jesus said, really, all the law, all the rules in the Bible, all the commands come down to these two things. He's telling us that everything that God wants of us and from us, everything he requires in the Bible is really coming from his desire that we would love him and love each other. And so we've been doing is spending the year looking at the Bible and saying, if this is true, what does that mean? What does that change? How does that inform our lives and our relationships to God? And this sermon series, Famous Stories of Love, is zeroing in on that by looking at stories that Jesus either told or stories from his life that give shape to this idea that love matters most. And we're going to continue that sermon series by looking at one of my favorite stories in all of the Bible, Mark chapter 2 and the story of the paralytic. You can find it by turning to the Gospel of Mark chapter 2 and beginning in verse 1. And by the way, if someone has shared this with you, if you're new and you're watching this, we're so glad that you're with us. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, you can just go online, Google, and put in Mark 2 ESV. And that will pull up uh, Mark chapter 2, and you can read along with me from your internet browser. But here is how the story goes. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. That's God's word. What a cool story. Listen, as we talk about this story this weekend, I want to use three simple points by way of an outline to help us navigate the story. And they are simply this. I want to talk about what we want from God, 
what God wants for us and how to know who's right. Okay, what we want from God, what God wants for us and how to know who is right. Let's start with what we want from God. In this story, the central character is, of course, Jesus. Jesus has shown up in town. He is staying at a home. The word is starting to get out about the miracles that he's performing and the radical things that he's teaching. He's becoming a little bit of a rock star, a little bit of a mythic figure that everyone wants to see and everyone wants to hear. And so the house that he's staying in begins to fill up. People want to hear him teach. They want to wait and see if he does something miraculous. And, and the word is getting out that not only is Jesus interesting and captivating and someone you definitely want to see, but he can do the miraculous. And so as Jesus will arrive at different towns, people will show up for healing. People who are sick or people who have physical disabilities, they'll, they'll show up to see if Jesus will heal them. And the story goes here that there is a man who has been paralyzed and he he is in need of physical healing obviously he lives his entire life on a mat now it is always true that to be paralyzed is an awful thing. That's true today in 2020, and it was even more so true back then because back then you didn't have motorized wheelchairs. You didn't have the Americans with Disabilities Act. You you didn't have this mindfulness that society has today for those with disabilities. Back then, if you were paralyzed, you were confined to being a beggar. And that was the most you could hope for out of life is that you would find somebody who would carry you, put you out in the street so that you could beg for money in the hopes that uh, you would get enough charity to be able to feed yourself and take care of yourself. It, it is a difficult thing to be paralyzed. So this man is in need of help. Well, he also has people who care about him. In fact, one of the best parts of these story is these four friends who are so dedicated to this particular paralyzed man that they grab his mat and they carry him to the house where Jesus is. Their thinking is that, hey, this could be the last time we have to carry our friend. And we're not carrying him so that he can beg outside of the marketplace. We're carrying him so that he might be able to carry his own mat back. We're hoping that he will get healing. But when they get there, the crowd is so big, they can't even get through the door. But they love their friends so much, and they're so convinced that Jesus can help that they're undeterred. And so they kind of huddle up and have a little powwow and say, what can we do? And what they decide is to climb on the roof of the house, which at this time would have been kind of a, 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 a mud and straw kind of concoction. And they're going to climb up on the roof and they're going to rip open the roof and let their friend down like Mission Impossible style, right? They're just going to slowly kind of crank him down. And so you can imagine, first of all, the love that they have for their friend. It's incredible. They, they will not stop until he he gets in front of Jesus and the faith that they have because they are so convinced that Jesus can do this, that they, all they got to do is, is, is get their friend to Jesus, even if they have to commit uh, a misdemeanor to do it. That's okay. They'll, they'll live with the consequences. They want to do it. But can you imagine what it's like in the house where Jesus is teaching and you're listening and you start to hear something, you're, you're looking around, you're, maybe a little bit of the roof is falling on your shoulder and you look and 
all of a sudden, a hole is ripped in the roof and there is a man on a mat that's being lowered. And just the, the scene that this would have been, the interruption that this would have been, the focus of everyone in the room would have been there. And it was clear in that moment that what those friends wanted and what that man wanted was for Jesus to heal him so that he could walk. They believed that Jesus would love this man and they believed that loving this man would mean healing him. And I can't help but think that these men are doing with Jesus what we always tend to do with God. They are looking for God to give them the miracle that they believe that they need. They are looking for God to show his love in a way that makes sense to them. They're coming to God and saying, God, this is what you should do. Jesus, this is what you should give. And that's how we all tend to approach God. We tend to go to God saying, God, if you love me, you would give me this. God, if you're out there and you care about me, I need you to do that. Most of us have this idea of love that we bring to God and we say to him, whether out loud or in our heads or in our hearts, if you loved me, you would do this. Have you ever thought that way? God, if you loved me, I wouldn't be single. God, if you loved me, you would give me children. God, if you loved me, I would get that promotion. God, if you loved me, I would be financially well off. What we're saying to God is, this is what I would do for me if I were God. This is how I would love me if I were you. This is how you should love me. In fact, for a lot of people who end up walking away from God, when you listen to their story, what they are telling you is that I had in mind a particular way that God would love me, and he didn't seem to love me in that way. We tend to think that God should give us what we want. We tend to define what it would mean for God to love us, and we tend to say to God, this is what I really want from you. In fact, you might be tuning in for the first time this weekend saying to God, I'll listen to what you have to say, but what I'm really looking for is for you to do this for me or that for me, for you to love me in this way. That's what we want from God. But that leads me to my second point, which is to say, God actually has something he wants for us that we might come to God saying, God, if you loved me, you would give me this. But God actually has his own definition of love. In fact, if you think about the story, the friends pick up their, their paralyzed friend's mat and they carry him to Jesus and they climb the roof and they rip it open and they lower him down. And there he sits on the ground, Jesus watching him descend. And everyone listens in to what Jesus is going to say. And the friends think, oh my goodness, it's working. Our plan is working. We have Jesus's attention. And Jesus looks at the man and he says, your sins are forgiven. Now think about that. Think about in that moment, you have the four friends up on the roof saying, well, you know, that's nice. He's forgiven. Great. That's not why we came. That, that's not what 
what we're looking for. I mean, great, his sins are forgiven. And what else? You know, you know, there are cough. <coughs> He's paralyzed. <coughs> can can you heal him? Can you imagine the shock on his face? And as you're reading the story, you think he's gonna say, your sins are forgiven, and and of course, you know what? Absolutely, get up and walk, but he doesn't. In fact, he only heals the man when the religious leaders grumble that he can't forgive sin. We'll look at that in a minute, but the story reads this way. If they had never grumbled, Jesus would have left this man paralyzed. Can you imagine being the friends? You come this far and Jesus sees your friend and speaks to him, but he forgives him, not heals him. Can you even imagine being the paralyzed man? And you are on your mat and you look at Jesus and he sees you and he speaks to you and you're just waiting for the words to roll off of his lips, get up and walk. You are healed. You're waiting to feel some kind of tingling sensation to regain feeling in your legs. And instead what you hear is your sins are forgiven. Well, you see, Jesus is saying something to this man. Jesus is saying to him, you think your biggest need is physical healing. You think that the biggest problem in your life is that you can't walk, but I actually think your biggest problem is that you aren't forgiven. I think your biggest problem is that you're a sinner. I think your biggest problem is that you're guilty. In fact, Jesus is saying by looking at this man and saying your sins are forgiven without telling him, to get up and walk, Jesus is actually saying that it is better to be forgiven and paralyzed than it is to be healthy and and be unforgiven. Now, that's fascinating because most of us, if we're honest, would take the ability to walk. Most of us would rather just have the physical healing. But you see, Jesus is saying, you came here thinking love for you would look one way, but actually because I love you, this is what I want to give you. I actually want to forgive you. And you see, that's, I think, what God would say to all of us that we tend to go to God saying, my biggest problem is that I'm not married. My biggest problem is that I don't have children. My biggest problem is I don't have enough money or whatever it might be. But God looks at us and says, actually, your biggest problem is your guilt. Your biggest problem is your sin. Your biggest problem is that we are not in relationship. You have turned your back on me. Your biggest problem is that you were made to know me and love me and be loved by me, and yet we are at odds. Your biggest problem is that you need to be forgiven. Jesus is letting us in that on, on this simple truth that when we meet God, whatever it is we want to talk about, God actually has something he wants to talk about, and that something is our need for forgiveness. This, by the way, is what God would want to say to you. This is the message of Jesus to you, that whatever has drove you to watch this weekend service, what God really wants you to know and what God really wants you to receive and what God really believes you need is to be forgiven. It is better to go without that thing you're wanting and be forgiven than to have it 
and be at odds with God. But again, most of us would say, I just don't know if that's true. I'd rather walk. I'd rather be married. I'd rather have children. I'd rather have more money. I'd rather have whatever it is that you are so prone to wanting. So then that leads me to my third point. How can we know who's right? How can we know whether or not we really need what we think we need or whether or not we actually need what God thinks we need? Well, I want you to think about it this way. When someone doesn't give us what we think we need, typically there are two reasons, two reasons why they wouldn't give it to us. One is they can't give it to us. They're actually incapable of giving it to us. This would be like if at Christmas time, if I give my five kids some various gifts uh, and they open them and they say, oh, dad, this is nice, but we were all kind of hoping for flat screen TVs. Well, I may say, uh, well, you didn't get flat screen TVs. And they may say to me, well, we would have been happier with new TVs. I don't doubt that that's true. I am not capable of getting each one of my kids a brand new television. So it isn't a question of whether or not they would be happier if they had them. It's a question of my inability to pull the trigger on that kind of thing. That's the first reason they're not capable of giving it to us. But the second reason is because they don't love us enough. That's what we tend to think, right? Well, they can't do it or they won't do it. They just don't care about us enough. But I want you to see that in this story, neither one of those things are true. In fact, when the religious crowd grumbles and says, who are you to forgive sin? Jesus says to them, which is harder, to forgive someone's sin before God or to tell them to walk? Well, we tend to think, well, it's harder to tell them to walk. And so he says, watch. And he says to the man, take up your bed and walk. And the man gets up and he is physically healed. In that moment, you realize it was never about Jesus's capability. And then you realize it also wasn't about Jesus's love for the man because he does heal him. He does care about the man's status as as someone who's disabled or someone who's invalid. No, Jesus is letting us in on something. What if it isn't because God is incapable? And what if it isn't because God doesn't love us? What if there's a third reason why God doesn't give us that thing that we think we need? And what if that third reason is That's not actually what we need. It's not best for us. It's not good for us. Let me me give you a kind of humorous example from my own marriage. I've been married for almost 15 years, and there are a lot of times where I'm trying to convince my wife what I really need is this, and she's trying to convince me that is not what I actually need. And one year around time for the Super Bowl, uh, I discovered something called a prop bet. And I'm not endorsing this, by the way, but I can be a foolish guy. And so if you don't know, prop bets are bets around the Super Bowl about various crazy things, like what color is the Gatorade going to be when they dump it on the winning coach? Or how long is the national anthem going to be? Or will the first touchdown be a passing play or a running play? And those kinds of weird things. And I remember one year in the lead up to the Super Bowl, I was telling my wife, I've watched sports my entire life. I love sports. I've seen a lot 
lot of Super Bowls. And I was trying to convince her that if she would let me use some of our money on these bets, I could make us a lot of money. That I was so confident that, that I knew the answer to these things. And she would tell me uh, very wisely, Zach, I don't think that's smart. I don't think we should do that. And we would go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, until in a moment, in a stroke of genius, she looked at me and she said, I'll tell you what, write down all the prop bets you would wanna make this year, every single one of them, and pick the side that you would pick. And at the end of the Super Bowl, we'll look at whether or not you would have won. And if you would have won and you would have made us money, then next year we can do it. And if you wouldn't have, we won't. And I was so confident, I said, man, that sounds great. I wrote them all out, picked my sides, and waited to be proven right. But that isn't what happened. In fact, when the Super Bowl was over, I hadn't gotten a single one of the bets right. I would have been wrong on every single one of them. I would have lost every dollar that I wagered. And in that moment, I looked at my wife and realized something. It wasn't that we didn't have the money and it wasn't that she didn't love me. It was that I'm an idiot and she knew best. And you know, not only was that helpful in that moment, but in the years to come, there have been a lot of times where I wanna spend money on something and my wife is saying, I don't think that's smart. And every time I'm tempted to say, what does she know? I know best. I remember those prop bets. I remember that she saved our family a lot of money, that she does sometimes know what's best and she does love me. It isn't about capability and it isn't about affection. It's about her knowing better than me. And I think that's exactly what Jesus is inviting us to see. You see, the story of Jesus isn't just that he looked at this man and said, pick up your bed and walk. The story of Jesus is that when he asks which is harder, to heal a paralyzed man or to forgive sins, he is inviting us to realize that by watching his life, that it is infinitely harder for him to forgive sin than it is for him to give us what it is we think we want. In fact, his forgiving this man of his sin will ultimately lead Jesus to the cross. Because the only way this man can be forgiven or you can be forgiven or I can be forgiven is for Jesus to live sinlessly in our place and to die excruciatingly on the cross, receiving God's judgment for our sin and then dying and raising from the dead and saying to us, I have lived in your place, I have died in your place and if you grab hold of me, you can be forgiven. You see, when Jesus looks at that man on the mat and he says, your sins are forgiven, what he is actually saying to that man is, I am going to die for you. I love you so much, I will give my own life for you. In that moment, the man would have looked at Jesus and said, do you love me? Do you care about me? And if you do, how could you leave me on this mat? And Jesus would say to him, I love you enough to climb onto the cross for you. You see, Jesus shows us that God loves us. And when he raises from the dead, he shows us God is capable of anything. So that when we come to God and say, God, if you loved me, you would give me this. God, if you loved me, you would do this for me. Jesus says, listen, it isn't about whether or not he could do that. He absolutely could. When Jesus raises from the dead, he shows us God can do anything. And it isn't about he doesn't love you because Jesus will die for us 
out of God's love for us, Jesus is saying to us that my life, my ministry is evidence to you that when God doesn't love you in the way you think he should, it is not because of capability and it is not because of love. It is instead this, he knows better than us. He loves us too much to give us too little. Friends, I'm inviting you to see that just like this man on the cot, what we come to God asking for is not what we actually need. What we need is to be forgiven. What we need is to have our guilt before God wiped out. What we need is to know that God sees us as sons and daughters in relationship with him. It doesn't mean that he won't give us the things we're after but it means that he tells us all, whatever it is you're chasing, it is better to know you're forgiven and to know that you're loved than it is to get that. We tend to want certain things for God, from God. God wants to be in relationship with us and Jesus shows us he is the one who is right.